For those remaining in the auditorium or watching online, please take your Bibles with the James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And this morning we're going to be finishing the chapter, verses 13 through 18 this morning. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. As was mentioned in the opening illustration, at about the midway point of his letter, James gives us the central theme of what he has for us and why he wrote this to those to whom he is writing. He desires that those that claim Christ, those that are followers of God through Christ by the Spirit, those who have lives that are being transformed by the good news, that although we are great sinners, there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous, would live in a way that is wise, would live in a way that is in accordance with how God has designed us to live. He has laid this out for us right from the beginning in chapter 1. And as we mentioned at the end of chapter 1, he's distilled for it into three realities for us what a Christian life looks like, what a life transformed and being transformed by the gospel looks like. This is one who cares for those who are helpless. This is one who watches what they say, which means that their heart is being transformed because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is one who keeps himself unstained by the world, keeps himself pure. And here in this hinge passage, James is going to address in many ways all three. He's yet to address in, in broader form, in more extensive uh, way, the reality of worldliness, and he's going to pick that up in chapter 4. But here he sort of ties everything together and wants to talk to us about wisdom. And this, of course, is the title of our sermon this morning. Wisdom. It seems to be a commodity that is less and less prized in our society and in our culture. To live an honorable, a noble, a good life, to be wise, and not wise in one's own eyes, doing things the way that we want them to do, operating in ways that are contrary to the design of our Creator, but living life the way that God has designed it to be lived, to be wise. And so we want to look at wisdom then this morning from our passage. So James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. As always, if you're visiting with us this morning and don't have a copy of God's Word somewhere under the chairs in front of you, there should be a copy of the Bible. Please take that with you. If you don't have one, we'd love you to take that as our gift to you. We want you to have a copy of the Word of God Everything we do at Grace is grounded in, rooted in, and formed by the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, and so we would love everyone to have a copy of that. In that particular version of the Scriptures, it is on page 951, 951, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of God. So James opens then in verse 13 with the core of what wisdom is. And there's three things here hopefully we can see from this passage. James has just got, got finished, completed, a treatise on the tongue and on our use of our speech. And we looked at that last Sunday. And what he's going to move into, as mentioned, is an extended treatment on worldliness and what it means to not live for this world, but instead for the world and the life to come, to not be enamored with and bogged down by the priorities of those that do not have an eternal perspective, but instead to have that eternal perspective and live life in light of it. And in this hinged passage here, he's going to walk us through what wisdom is. And so the core of what wisdom is, there are three things here for us in the passage. So he asked the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Perhaps referencing back to the first part of the chapter where he talked about those that would be teachers. So there are those that are going around and saying, I know the way to go. Follow me. These individuals in our context <clears throat> are known as influencers or they want to be. I've got it figured out. You don't know the way, but I know the way, so follow me. Follow what I have to say. And James says... Who is like that among you? This is what that actually should look like. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so in the first place, there is a modifier there that is good. First of all, for wisdom to exist, there must be knowledge of what is good. The source of a wise life, the source of wisdom, must be the source of all wisdom, which is God. Anyone who is doing things on their own, following their own way, their own rules, their own thoughts and ideas, is not wise. Goodness is defined by the one who spoke all things into existence. He is good. And therefore, to be good is to, first of all, know him and know his word. Knowledge, then, must be the first element of wisdom. And thankfully, we don't have to come up with that on our own. God has not left us to our own devices. He has given us his word. He has spoken to us through his written word as well as his word, his son, Jesus Christ, the Logos, John 1, and so we not only know the truth from the written word of God, we also know what that looks like in a life lived through Jesus Christ. And so James says the way to know if someone is wise or has actual understanding is, is their conduct, is their life marked by that which resonates with the word of God, is modeled after the word of God, matches the character of God? Are they actually Christ-like? in how they speak, in their behaviors, in their attitudes, and in their actions. Do they know truth? But notice James is not 
ultimately concerned, or I should say exclusively concerned with what we know, as we saw back in chapter 2. He's also concerned with what we do. And so he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works. Three different ways he chooses to say, so knowledge has to be lived out. It's not enough to know all these creeds and confessions, to quote the Puritans and to have all of this good theology on paper if it does nothing for the life of the person who knows it. See, as we discovered, James grew up with Jesus. James shares a mother with Jesus, does not share a father because Jesus is virgin born, but he grew up with Jesus. And for his entire childhood and on into adolescence and beyond, James did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. I'll probably give James a little bit of a break. If your brother declared himself to be the son of God, we probably wouldn't believe either. And yet James could see there are certain groups of individuals that we have a difficult time hiding from or portraying ourselves to be something different than we actually are, and family's one of them. It's one thing to say, well, this is who I am in public. Who are you behind closed doors? Family knows that. Jesus didn't just make a claim of perfection. He was perfect, and James had a front row seat. But we know from John's gospel, at least in other places, that he did not believe Jesus was who he said he was. He rejected Jesus' claim. But how does he start his book? James, a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He now believes. James has a lot of lost time to make up for. He has no time to waste. And so James, not that other scripture writers have time to waste either, but James is particularly forthright because he recognizes and understands our time is short. And for half of his life, for the first part of his life, he did not believe. Now he does, and that should make a difference. And, and James understands that. And so it's not just knowledge that is necessary, although it is very necessary, but conduct, showing our knowledge, and out of good works is also very necessary. Living in a way that matches with, accords to truth. So one that knows the truth of God's word and also lives according to the truth of God's word. Not perfectly, because none of us can, but when we fail, admitting that, asking for forgiveness, and continuing to move forward to honor God. But that's oftentimes where our definition of wisdom stops. We know wisdom is God's knowledge applied. We, we understand, even from the book of Proverbs, it's a life that is worth emulating, a life worth living, a life well lived. It's conduct and knowledge married together in a, in a single life. That's what wisdom typically is. But James adds a third element. Notice what he says. In the meekness of wisdom. James says pride and arrogance, if it is part of a life, cannot rightly be called wise. It is not just the knowledge nor is it the conduct, it's also the heart motivation behind the conduct, and it's the way in which the behavior is conducted. Now that adds a whole new level. James understands that it's not just knowing the truth, he did that, he grew up with truth embodied in his home as a boy. He understands it's not just truth lived out. 
He's attempting to do that. He now believes. But there's a way in which we are to live out truth. Arrogance, boasting, pride, has no place in a Christian attitude, a Christian life, a life of wisdom. James says, with the meekness of wisdom. Now what could James be tempted to do? If you happen to be a sibling of the Lord Jesus Christ, what might you do with that reality? Especially within the Christian world. Hey guys, I heard all of the leadership positions are filled, but I happen to have grown up with Jesus. So maybe you've got another one. Maybe I should be in charge. We tend to use those things to our advantage. Now, James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, but how does he use his position in Acts 15 in particular, among other places? He brings everybody in, Paul and Barnabas, Peter, everybody in, presides over an argument that could have split the early church just as it was getting started, and what is James' evidence throughout that entire interaction? Humility and meekness. James is forthright, yes, he's bold and he's blunt, but he does not lack humility. All honor and glory to God, not to him. And so what I'm seeing, unfortunately, in a lot of broader Christendom, is there are individuals that have knowledge. They know the theology. They read voraciously. They're up on all the latest podcasts, articles. They go back and reread the Puritans and some of the older theologians listen to sermons, read sermon notes. They go to all the conferences. Their libraries are impressive. And they're jerks. They're arrogant. They don't show the wisdom of Christ. And they do good things, even. And yet there is also the reason behind why we are doing these things. Anything that brings attention to us, anything that is designed to elevate us, is not wisdom, is not the Spirit of Christ. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase and I must decrease. And what did Jesus do in John's gospel? After supper, this group of guys, this hodgepodge of diversity that Jesus called and brought together, none of them had washed anybody's feet. None of them had said, hey, listen, this is a unique gathering. It's the Passover meal with just Jesus and the disciples. There are no servants here. Our feet have not been washed. Well, I'm not washing anybody else's feet. Well, I'm not washing anybody else's feet. These guys just prior to this had an argument of who's going to sit on Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom. What does Jesus do? He kneels down in front of them and washes their feet. Jesus. The one who spoke all things into existence. Takes the place of the servant. And what does he say? As my servants, you are to do likewise. 
James' definition of wisdom, I think, adds that key ingredient that is oftentimes missing. We believe if we know right and do right, that, that just those two things are a life of wisdom. But there also must be the attitude with which it is done, the motivation behind the doing of it. Are we living life truly for God's glory, or is there any part of it that's for us? The core of wisdom, then, is right knowledge, right action, and right attitude. All three must be present. Because the type of wisdom that is earthly, that is not from above, sows discord and division. I have been through church hurt, and I know you have too. And as I have been through church hurt and read of much church hurt, 99.9% of the time, it all comes down to this, power. Whose opinion, whose preference, whose way of doing things is going to prevail? It doesn't have much to do with the gospel. It doesn't have much to do with those that do not yet worship God. When churches split, when churches have division and discord, when Christians hold grudges, when Christians can't get along with one another... It is almost always, if not always, a lack of humility. A lack of a desire to say, God first, me second. And as we were together too at Rikapuna this summer, somebody put it this way. Two missionaries were involved in a disagreement. And one of them looked out the window and he saw one of the tribes people that did not yet know Jesus. And he said, he asked his fellow missionary, is this argument worth his soul? And so we need to ask ourselves, this thing that I'm really bothered by, and we're going to deal with more of it next Sunday as we look at James chapter 4, this thing that really has my back up that I'm really pushing for, is this for God's glory or for mine? Is this about him or is it about me? And is this worth the soul of individuals who are going to not see the gospel thereby? And so then James talks about ungodly wisdom in verses 14 through 16. Notice this ungodly wisdom is in brackets. This is not actual wisdom, but it's the way that feels right oftentimes. Certainly the advice that we oftentimes get from our friends and from others, and it certainly seems to be the way that the world is working. Look out for number one. Make sure that your voice is heard, your opinion is taken seriously. Make sure that you are promoted, you are advanced. Get what you can while the getting's good. Don't be a pushover. Don't just back down. Stand up for yourself. All of these things have a nugget of truth in them, but they are not actual wisdom. Notice in the first place that the core of this is corrupt. But, James says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Someone has said that politics is a dirty game, but religious politics is even worse. Because it's not the gospel, it's not actually the word of God, it's not the glory of God, it's human ambition, human zeal, human desires. 
But what makes it worst is it's painted over with a veneer of spirituality. I'm doing this in the name of God. So if you oppose it, you're opposing him, not me. That's reprehensible to a degree that's hard to sort of put into words, but this is, is it not the Pharisaical heart? Is this not what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day? It wasn't just that the Pharisees were full of pride, oh, that's bad enough. It was that they were leading other people in that way, but they were leading them according to their own press to God. And Jesus said, no, you're leading people away from my father. How many people followed the Pharisees away from God? Because they had a veneer of spirituality. But James says, if there's bitter jealousy, if there's this type of zeal that says, my views and opinions are the best, my particular reading of scripture is correct, my understanding of things is the most like God and his ways and his character, and if it's a real church, if it's a real group of Christians, they will walk in these ways. And thereby, I want people to look to me. I want people to respect me. I want people to take me seriously. How many false prophets, false teachers? And notice, Paul says, those false prophets and teachers are going to arise where? Not from outside. What did he say to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? From within. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They paper over their selfish ambition. They paper over their evil with a veneer of spirituality. It sounds good, but James says, if in your heart, if the source of this is selfish, self-promoting, he says, do not boast and lie against the truth. This isn't about standing firm for God and upholding his character, which, by the way, God doesn't need you to stand up for him. He's fairly well uh, you know, adept at doing that himself. I meet Christians who almost wear it as a badge of honor the number of churches they've been a part of in their lives. We could go down this trail, we will not this morning, but there are very few biblical reasons to leave a church. And you were right and everybody else in the church was wrong is not one of them. James says, don't boast, don't lie. This wasn't about God and his word. This wasn't about his glory and the perpetuation of the gospel. This is about you. You got your feelings hurt. You felt you weren't listened to. Your opinion wasn't the one that everybody else went with. And so you did whatever you did, which was divisive, not peace, as James will say in 3.18. How do you know that someone is speaking in the spirit of Christ? One of the ways James says is, do they promote unity, collaboration, or do they promote separation, division? 
Us two and not you, us three and not thee, us four and no more. I've got more, but we'll just stop there. Is that the spirit of this person? They may sound good. They may have a whole bunch of Bible verses. They might have a podcast. They might have a lot of people that listen to that podcast. They may be influential, but James will say, here's one way that you can know is the fruit of their ministry bringing more Christians together or isolating from other Christians? Because if it's a message of unity, John 17, then it is a message that has the Spirit of God in it. If it's a message of division, we're right and everybody else is wrong, run as fast as you can, as far as you can away from that. That is not of God, James says. Don't lie, he says, and don't boast. Our church of 10 people is the only church on the planet that has it right. Something gravely wrong with that. Because not only is the core corrupt, the core corrupt, sorry, because it's not the same core as verse 13, but the source is corrupt. Those verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James says the type of wisdom, so-called wisdom, that promotes self, that promotes the individual, is not the type of wisdom that comes down from God, from above. It's the type of wisdom that is earthly, earthbound. It only has an earthly view. It's not taking God's perspective or an eternal perspective into consideration. It is unspiritual, even though it's masquerading as spiritual, and actually the source of it is Demonic. What did Satan say? Isaiah 14. Numerous times. I will. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, and lastly, I will be like the Most High. That which is unwise, that which is not from God, is that which promotes self. Even if it hides behind Bible verses. This is about me, my thoughts, my opinions, my perceptions. Show me someone that struggles to submit to authority and I will show you someone that does not have biblical wisdom. And that individual hides behind spiritual garb, spiritual phrases. I just care so much about God and his word. I just care so much about the purity of the church. How many churches have you been into in your lifetime? Well, I've been to all of them in Charlottetown. None of them are very good. So now I'm going to other ones. James says this isn't wisdom. It's not submission to authority as Hebrews 13, 17 calls us. This is not submission ultimately to God. This is arrogance and pride. Its source is corrupt, and then the result is corrupt. What happens? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, the jealousy and selfish ambition that he introduced us to in verse 14, what will be the result? There will be disorder and every vile practice. Disorder. God is not the God of confusion. He's the God of order. See, the gospel says that the greatest 
unreconcilable, seemingly unreconcilable relationship in the universe, us and God, can be reconciled and redeemed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means sinners can be made like Jesus, can be made like God. That it is possible for individuals to be holy. And that the prayer of Jesus in John 17, that we would be united, is actually possible. The gospel actually works. It actually is the power of God and the salvation. That all around me what I see is individuals that are just looking out for number one. All around me all I see is selfishness. And the farther our culture and our society goes away from God, the crazier and crazier it gets. No one is going to tell me what to do. I will be and do whatever I want to do. That's what our society says. But the gospel says it can actually change a human heart to say, no, I'm not God, but there is one, and I will listen to him. I will submit to him because his ways are best. And if you're also in submission to him, if you love Jesus, then we're brothers and sisters in Christ And although we come from different backgrounds and have different ideas, we can get together and we can serve in unity. I wrote an article for the TGC uh, Canada a while back, and I made the mention of the fact that in the 12 disciples of Jesus, especially relevant to the time that we just came through, there was Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. You do not get individuals that are further on opposite ends of the political spectrum. There's an individual in the 12 disciples of Jesus that actually decided that the best approach to the oppressive nation of Rome was to take up arms and actually institute guerrilla warfare against Rome, to do everything to disrupt Rome. Some of them even were known as the Sicarii, carried daggers and tried to kill Roman soldiers whenever they could. The problem is, the, is Rome, and we need to do everything we can to destroy it. And on the other end of the spectrum is Matthew, the tax collector, who's working for Rome against his fellow Jews. How do those two guys get together and be united in the same place at the same time? Why? Because they found something greater than politics. They found something better than their position on what to do about Rome. They found Jesus. Unity is possible. If we submit lesser things to the greater one who is Jesus Christ. And James knows about that. Because he grew up with Jesus. And he now has submitted lesser things to his half-brother Jesus. Who he knows now to be Lord and Savior. So wherever there's disorder, infighting, tension, grudges, every kind of vile practice... James says that is not wisdom. Wisdom is not there. You notice he didn't talk about do they adhere to this particular creed or confession of the church, which from his standpoint weren't yet written. It's not about knowledge exclusively. It's about knowledge lived out, but it's knowledge lived out with meekness and humility. And so know what is godly wisdom in verses 17 and 18. Notice that the core of godly wisdom is correct. The wisdom of from above is first what? Pure. There's no ulterior motives in the wisdom from above. Do we befriend people only because we believe that they might be able to help us out? Are we kind to those that maybe can be kind back to us in return? Do we befriend those that are seemingly influential so maybe we can get a little bit of that ourselves? 
Are we genuine in our interactions with others? Or is there something subtle, is there something hidden behind those? James says what John says, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And he said in chapter 1, there's not even a shadow of turning. There's nothing in God that is, is different from what you see on the surface. You never have to doubt if God has your best interest in mind. He always has your best interest in mind. He actually cares. You ever have a relationship with somebody or meet somebody that you're not quite sure if they actually care about you? When you go to talk, it seems like they just want to wait for your mouth to stop so that they can get a word in edgewise. You have a story, they have a better one. You seem to be the only one that's reaching out and trying to engage in the relationship. They don't seem to be putting in the work. That's never the case with the Almighty. He actually cares about you. So much so that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live, die, rise again, and ascend for you. So James says, the core of God's wisdom then is pure. It's unadulterated. There's nothing else mixed in. It's true, genuine care, compassion, and concern. And one of the, uh, the illustrations that he uses, or analogies he uses, is true religion before God and the Father is this, he says in 126 and 27, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. An individual that helps those that cannot help them back is acting in the spirit of Christ. What do we bring to the table? What do you offer God? You ever try to buy a Christmas gift for somebody who has everything? That's nothing in comparison to God. Literally everything is his. He made it all. What do you bring to the table? What do we bring to the table? Nothing. And so the same with our interactions with others. Is it about what they can give us or is it about genuine care and compassion and concern for them? Costly, sacrificial giving. Pure, that which has integrity. Notice the source is correct. Jump up to the first part of verse 17. But the wisdom from where? Above. This is not the type of wisdom that we can come with on our own. Whole civilizations have attempted to do so. False religions of all different kinds, but they all come down to the same thing. It is us as humans trying to go up. Only Christianity says, no, 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 no. God came down. See, because we can't go up. We can try to better ourselves through all different kinds of ideologies and isms, ancient and modern. But they all have the same source, us. But see, the problem is, we're the problem. We need outside help. God must come down, and he has. He's given us his word and his word, Jesus Christ the righteous. The wisdom then that's from above, the source is correct. And notice the result. It is peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. These three things are together in the Greek. It's a little play on words with word endings in Greek, which you don't see in the English. It's fascinating how James put this, puts this together. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Easy to talk to. Open to what you have to say. Not so stuck in their ways. Certainly on things that are not black and white in Scripture. 
open to a conversation, open to an actual human interaction. What marks cults, what marks fundamentalist thinking is strict adherence to a lengthy list of rules, regulations, and the like. No deviation. James says that's not the wisdom that is from above. It's peaceable. It's, it's interested in promoting peace and unity. It is gentle. It's not harsh. It's open to reason. It's open to sharing back and forth. Easy to talk to. Draws you in. Notice it's full of mercy and good fruits. Fruit of the Spirit among them. There's grace and mercy. It ought to be a place that attracts us, where we feel that we're a part of the family. We feel valued and seen and heard. See, in a fundamentalist mindset, in a mindset that's not the wisdom from above, it's all about what you do. And you better do all of these things and do them right and do them in the right order and do them right now. And if you don't, you're out. Because that's selfish. That promotes disorder. James says, no, the wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. Jesus ascribes his heart towards us in Luke's gospel. He says, come, come to me because I am gentle and lowly. The one who had the most reason and the deepest ability to be turned away by our sinfulness is the one that comes closest to us and draws us in. That is not to say that we're okay with sin. But it is to say, is our heart motivation mercy and grace? Are we interested in the business of reconciliation and redemption? Are we desirous of unity and collaboration? Or do we actually prefer us being up here and everybody else being down here? Any person that believes themselves superior to someone else does not have the Spirit of Christ. It is impartial and sincere. James dealt with partiality, chapter 2. Luke preached on that. The sincerity there, integrity. As I mentioned before, there's a show uh, that was on, I don't know if it's still on, but it's called Is It Cake? And contestants try to bake a cake that looks like an everyday object, a bowling ball, a house plant, whatever it might be. And the judges have to look at it and say, is it the actual object or is it cake? And how do they know whether it is cake or not? They have to cut into it. Are you the same all the way through? Or is just the outside of you one way and the inside's different? James says the gospel of Jesus Christ creates in us, transforms us to be sincere. The same all the way through. And notice verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What we want righteousness, I think. Is everybody still with me? Can I get an amen? That was weak. 
We want righteousness, right? We want life to be lived according to how God says it's to be lived. We want life to be about light and about God's way of doing things. We bemoan the fact, I think, how bad things have gotten and they seem to continually be getting worse. We want things to be righteous, do we not? Do we not want a harvest of righteousness? How is that done? It's sown, how? In peace by those who make peace. Going back to verse 13, it is knowing right, doing right, for the glory of God. It is meekness and humility. The servants of God, Moses, meekest person. Jesus, meek. John the Baptist, meek, humble. Our culture says well, you gotta, you got to worship power, somebody that's powerful and charismatic and can get things done. James says that's not the wisdom from above, that's the wisdom from below. The wisdom from above is that which mirrors God. And it is peace-making. Its design is to transform lives so that they also worship God and become more like Him. Gentle, easy to be entreated, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, these and other things. Christians should not be known for their bombacity, for their ability to speak loudly and, and to have their rights protected. I'm reading a book on early church history, and it's fascinating. Those that went to be ripped apart by wild animals, the gladiatorial contests, and they were, they were so excited to be martyrs for Jesus Christ. Rights? What rights? I have said it from this pulpit and I will say it <laughs> many more times. Life's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. James says that's wisdom. Knowing right, doing right for the right reason. All three of those things need to be there for it to be wise. Churches that split, churches that have grudges and disorder and disunity are not following the wisdom of God. They claim to be of God and for God and they are not. And James says, don't boast, don't lie against the truth. That's not the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God draws people in and draws people up. And that's how we should be conducting ourselves by his glory. So our response then this morning is, are we wisely selfless? Are we living life the way God intended us to live it? Knowing right, doing right for the right reason. In a way that honors him and not us. As the Moravians used to say, love God, serve him, die and be forgotten. Is that our goal in life? To bring many people to glory. To bring many people to worship God. It's not about you, and it's not about me. And James wants us to know that this morning. Let's look to him in prayer as we prepare for communion together. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for your love for us, your goodness and grace to us.
Father, we will struggle with selfishness our entire lives this side of glory. We like our comfort. We like things done the way we want it done. We have our preferences when it comes to every aspect of church life and every aspect of our lives. We don't like to wait in line. We want things done in our time. We want, to, we want things done our way. We are constantly making idols of ourselves. And the gospel flips all of that around. It's not about us, it never was. But we are objects of your love. And we were designed to share you with those around us. And we were designed to do that together. And so Father, help us. Help us to repent of the ways in which we have made it about us. And perhaps the people that we have turned off from the truthfulness of our message because we have shown it by our practice to be the same as everything else out there. Instead, Father, give us your heart for those who do not yet know you, that we are being changed by the gospel. We're not who we used to be. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.